0: I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome, Solar Warrior. Happy holidays. And thanks once again for lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource you've got, and that is your time. I'm so grateful for those of you who perhaps are listening for the first time. If you get a ton of value out of this episode, I'd love it if you'd give me that feedback. Uh, I'd love to get to know you better. Today's entrepreneur is no stranger to the power industry and renewables. Practically his entire career has been in the renewable energy field, from hydro to nuclear to, yes, lots and lots and lots of solar. Mitch Simulian is the CEO of the yet-named O&M company that will be the focus of our conversation today. It's Tonian Solar, but by the time this actually airs, you'll see in the episode name that it has a new name. Well, that's the process of building enterprise. And Mitch has been responsible for starting up not only this innovative o company, but has been a part of some of the most iconic brands in the industry, TVA, First Solar, Clearway, R G, He's worked at Ivanpah and numerous other mega solar projects. And we're going to dig in to not just what it looks like from the inside operating these plants, but how we tend to overcomplicate it and what Tony and, and Mitch are doing to simplify and improve the process. His 40 plus years of electric industry expertise will leave you with lots of gems to help along your own journey in clean energy if you like what you're hearing i hope that you'll subscribe to the show that ensures that you won't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this and if you have listened to the show before and you haven't yet left us a review we've got a fancy new tool that you can go uh, leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast rate this podcast forward slash suncast i hope that you'll take the time to do that for now Get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, as promised today, we are hanging out with someone who candidly has a lot of firsts for uh, the companies he's worked for, for his career, in some cases for our industry. Mitch, it's great to have you on Suncast. And I look forward to hearing about how you were the first hired into some of the brands that I've looked up to most in my career. Welcome to Suncast.
1: Thank you very much. Good talking.
0: Yeah, likewise, man. You've had uh, a fabled career. Uh, I think most of us would be lucky to just get to hang out and hear some of your stories, uh, let alone have a career that looks something like it. Did you grow up in a family that was um that was focused on uh, building a career or building companies, sort of was it entrepreneurial? How would you characterize the the time when you were growing up and what your family was doing around you that informed the way you thought about careers?
1: You know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, my, uh, my grandfather uh, actually was an executive with Tampa Electric Company back in the 50s. He, like myself, uh, was, in, was in the Navy. And so when I got out of the Navy, it seemed like a logical thing to do. You know, Navy kind of sets you up for working in power plants with, you know, processes, mm-hmm. procedure, training, structure. Um, and so when I got out of the Navy, I went to work at a nuclear plant. And mm. so, so that was my, that was my first job.
0: What inspired you to join the Navy?
1: Well, it seemed that I couldn't make it to my uh, first class in the morning on multiple occasions <laughs> in college. And my dad got tired of paying my college bill and, and ex- actually told me I should go volunteer and do something different. <laughs> it didn't, wow. didn't involve in expending his funds. So that's how that happened.
0: That's funny. Well, it's, it's not every day that when you opt into an alternative to college, You get the experience of a lifetime uh, by becoming a nuclear engineer. I I would have to assume that was your first foray into the renewable industry. At at what point did it become clear to you that you were going to spend the bulk of your career thinking about and working on power plants?
1: It's kind of interesting, you know. So I worked in in nuclear plants uh, for a number of years and got into training. Uh, I really liked training quite a bit, and I had an opportunity uh, back. Uh, in 1995 to um, teach uh, on the Columbia River. So I took this job as a training supervisor on the Columbia River, starting up their training program. What I really wanted to do was, you know, in the nuclear industry, you're a small fish in a really big pond. A lot of really smart people uh, that are out there. Jobs are really competitive and everything. And I thought maybe if I took a different career path, maybe it would give me an opportunity. I really wanted to be a plant manager in five years. So that was my goal. So I was going to take this pay cut. I took about a 40% pay cut, packed up the family, moved to Oregon, up in the Pacific Northwest, and took this job as a training supervisor with a goal of being a plant manager. 18 months later, I was a plant manager of 600 megawatts in Arkansas for the Corps of Engineers. 18 months later, I was at Glen Canyon as their assistant manager. And a few years later, I was the senior engineer over hydropower in the Western US.
0: Amazing. So you pivoted from nuclear... To hydro, and I recall you said that uh, over the course of your career, you worked with all three of the major hydropower agencies. For those who perhaps aren't unfamiliar, as I was, can you outline what those agencies are and, and uh, how it's broken up around the around the U.S. for hydro?
1: Yeah, so so the so you have the Army Corps of Engineers, which is responsible for navigation, river management, and control. Uh, the Bureau of Reclamation is more of a water resource, water storage. They have the iconic dams in the West, like Grand Coulee, Hoover, Glen Canyon, Shasta. Yeah. And then there was Tennessee Valley Authority, which had the mission of development in the basically the Tennessee Valley area and used hydropower to you know, run factories and basically improve the lives of people. TVA was the last position I had in the federal government, and that's where I got my exposure really to, for the first time to renewables, uh, I was a, a manager over there, Hydro O&M, but it also included uh, 16 solar sites and two wind farms and a biogas plant. And so that was the first time I really got involved with solar. It was kind of interesting, like my first week on the job, I had the issue with one of the sites where it was on a school ground and the school wanted to build a building where the solar plant was and had to go around and negotiate you know, <laughs> How to move a solar plant so they could build a building and everything, even though, you know, we had built it with the understanding that they weren't going to have to move it. And so anyway, you know, it, it was
0: how interesting. There was
1: some, <laughs> I learned a lot about how to dismantle and reassemble a solar plant here in a pretty short period of time because they'd already had their permits and were ready to go. And then they realized they were going to have to move this plant.
0: Well, I guess that's a skill that is uh, is going to become useful again as land use uh, and uh, and people's ideas change over time. Mm-hmm. Previous executives decide how to use a parcel of land where now solar plants sit and future executives will decide that the highest and best use is something else. I'll never forget the first time I realized that there were other things more important than generating power was sitting with a, a hospital executive. And he said to, to us, he's like, look, you know, that, at that time, six figures of savings a year is a line item on my, my, uh, my manager, our facilities manager's monthly budget. I'd much rather just sit on that parcel and use it for a parking garage. And, and I, I was dumbfounded. I was like, wait a minute, this is going to save you six figures. It's a rounding error for you. And you'd rather just wait and not lose the opportunity to be able to better serve your clients by putting a parking garage than to generate your own power. But uh, the, these are the, these are the kinds of uh, things that we can confront as we engage in uh, bringing about a clean energy future for, for the, for the customers that we serve. You know, I want to touch on a couple of things just about sort of the progression of your career, but it always fascinates me the choices that folks make about the story they tell in public. And one of the ways that many of us learn about you know, who you are, who others are is through LinkedIn. And I don't see any of the stuff about Army Corps of Engineers and the nuclear jobs and TVA on your LinkedIn. Is there a strategic reason why?
1: Not really. It's just that I didn't want to, this whole litany of things I'd done my entire career and everything. Actually, the, the most interesting thing that's not on there is the fact that uh, I was the last person hired by OptiSolar. are so you really? I was a, a career-tenured <laughs> federal employee with like 3,000 hours of sick leave. And someone from Corn Ferry calls me up and said, hey, wouldn't you want to go work for this startup company in the Bay Area? It's going to be a great job and everything. You'll get the startup and o and program from scratch and everything. So, so I leave the federal government, take an early retirement and everything, take this job and everything. The first thing they do is say, well, we got this plan up in Canada that we just can't seem to get started up. How about going up to Canada and, and starting this up? And they say, hey, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger is going to sign the 33% renewables. Why don't you fly down to Sacramento so you can be here for the signing ceremony? So here I'm in the parking lot with the signing ceremony and everything. I fly back to Canada a few weeks later for Schwarzenegger. Tours the factory that they're starting up in uh, in uh, Sacramento and everything like that, and then a few few days later,
0: they announced they're laying off half the company. My goodness, <laughs> you know. Based on your resume, I'm assuming you were part of the half that didn't get laid it off. Was
1: right, I was part of the half that did not get laid off, and I was part of the small group actually that got picked up by in the first solar acquisition. So, First Solar bought OptiSolar's pipeline, which really was the big iconic projects that you know got built wow. out in the Western U.S. Just in, in massive projects.
0: Yeah, and it was around the time that I was getting my feet wet in larger projects and starting to understand how sort of the renewable energy sector worked. And I, I remember the OptiSolar acquisition and, and the many other acquisitions that First Solar was engaged in at that time. You were, as I recall, the first hire into their plant operations, essentially. Is that right?
1: Correct. They had a group that was doing commissioning uh, and performance analytics, but they didn't have anybody that was doing O&M. So yeah, so I was like the first O and M person in the door, you know. So it was like me, and then they let me hire about three people, and so there was there was four of us uh, with one technician working out at uh, a little plant called Eldorado, which was the the first yeah. ten megawatt utility solar plant really built. Everything, and it was actually a behind the meter plant to the El uh, Eldorado combined cycle plant. Um, and then you know, and it, it just continued to grow to the organization it is today.
0: You know, you had a, a decorated career r- running other large plants. You were the first to effectively be able to set up this operation that, by all accounts, in our industry, had a, a very successful track record of plant uh, construction and operation at First Solar, although many of the folks that you worked with, like you, have now populated the industry in other roles. How has the industry around plant operation evolved for specifically with regard to solar and renewable power, since those early days at First Solar,
1: well, it was kind of interesting. We, um, uh, the the original group that was in the First Solar team and everything, and it was led by a uh, gentleman named Bob Cowery. Uh, we all came out of out of, out of the power industry, um, so the early days it was mostly people coming out of power the power industries, what really understood. Processes, procedures, work management, train, the importance of training, importance of safety programs, and everything. And it seems like the industry has grown so rapidly since those early days uh, that there's not been a lot of talented uh, people coming in out of the power industry. And I'm not sure if it's just the age of workforce or the power industry was doing really, really good. I mean, now if you if you look at the fossil industry, the fossil industry is in pretty large decline, but a lot of those people are, you know, into their retirement ages.
0: Yeah, they're effectively tenured.
1: Yeah. So, so I think that that's one of the hard spots And everything. It's not saying we don't have a lot of people out of the power industry. I, I just think that the industry is lacking some of, s- still some of those basic skills, those blocking and tackling things that were really important for an industry that's been around for over 100 years, right? Um, you know, if you think about it, we've been generating electricity for a long, long time in this country. Uh, and we've been doing it, you know, at, at you know, almost, you know, not, not perfection like the airline industry, but pretty close. And I think those are some of the things that the that the solar industry is still kind of lacking in, you know, from a, from a standpoint of processes, you know, policies, procedures, mm-hmm. training and stuff. And I think part of it is just this, uh, the matter of the growth is so explosive and there's so many positions uh, being created every day. That we're just kind of starving mm-hmm. for talent, and we really need to work on that getting talent in the door, uh, especially uh, uh, women in the workplace. There's not enough women working in yeah. renewables. There's definitely not enough minorities working in renewables. And we so we need to do something about that uh, through either trade schools or you know through junior colleges or even even coming out of high school. You know, shop classes need to be focusing more on renewables because I think. You know, skilled labor is, is in, in skilled labor in most of our industries is is in a shortage right now.
0: Workforce development is something that I've been thinking a lot about, and we talk about a lot here on Suncast. And uh, I couldn't agree with you more. It's something uh, I don't know if you're familiar. You probably are with Katie Minner it used to be uh, Pink Petro. She's now got this company, Ally Energy, really focused on helping uh, not only increase diversity but uh, give folks a way to to find a new career and. I think it's a really necessary, as you put it, it's a very necessary element that we we don't have enough uh, enough folks focused on, and not just recruitment, but development, cultivating sure. the skills and 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 showing folks that there's a legitimate career in renewable energy, and it's it's a similar if not better opportunity as what was offered by traditional fossil fuel and by the utility sector, et cetera. One of my biggest critiques is that folks don't learn the fundamentals of the power industry when they get into solar power or wind or, or, or any of those others. Unless you are actively in the process of developing a project and a need to understand how utility uh, operators think, most folks don't really learn how the power sector works. I-, I wanted to touch on that. And so I'll come back around to that question around some things I want to learn from you around that, the fundamentals of, of the industry. Uh, before I do that, I want to wrap up a little bit more of your credential, a little bit more of your work history. You were also the first hire into NRG. Is that right? First hired employee?
1: Well, actually, um, I I started up the Ivanpah facility, which is, you know, the the world's largest concentrated solar plant. So, yeah, yeah, I was tasked with hiring an operating crew, getting it through uh, commissioning, and then on to the first couple of years of commercial operation. Literally, when I got there, they basically said, you need to get 50 employees hired in the next eight weeks. So you got to get 50 employees hired, got to get them trained, because we're going to start uh, commissioning ended up being a little bit delayed. So it, it wasn't quite that quick. But it was still a pretty short timeline, you know, to get an ops manager, a maintenance manager hired, you know, get the work management system up and running and everything, get a safety person, get an environmental person and everything, get all the technicians hired, get them trained. Everything, you know, in in the middle of all this, you know, there's a funny story. So we're uh, our administrative building, it's always the last thing that gets built on a renewable plant site, right? The the office building, right? <laughs> because everybody wants to get the plant online because it makes electricity, you know, who needs a place for the technicians to hang out in, right? So we were literally working out of two con- connex boxes in the middle of the Mojave Desert in the summertime. And so I finally said, you know, enough's enough on this and everything. And we went and got a uh, Auditorium room down at one of the one of the uh, casinos down the street from us and everything. No and literally, I went in there, to put on my teaching hat on, and we started doing classes on fundamentals. And I basically would teach four hours a wow. day to the technicians on, you know, heat transfer, thermodynamics. You know it, it, because we you know there was nothing else to do right at that time and everything. you know there, the systems still weren't ready for inspection. there still wasn't time for walkdowns, and we had no building and all you're doing is getting a bunch of angry technicians because you know it's 115 degrees out in Mojave Desert and you're living in a connex box <laughs> you know with a couple of air conditioning units attached to it. So no anyway, so that was an interesting thing. I really got to know I really got to know my staff doing that though.
0: That's fantastic. And it shows that you have the the presence of mind to look around and see where there are gaps and fill those gaps and also to think about what is this team going to need when we get into operation? How how do we how do we want to make sure that these folks are trained, um, uh, fill in the the holes of their of their skill set? For folks that are unfamiliar with the time uh, sort of the the time period, we're talking about roughly 2011, 2012. And the first thing that occurs to me is what what convinced you or compelled you to leave First Solar to go to NRG? NRG at the time was being run by David Crane. For those who are unfamiliar, it was uh, it is still it still is a utility that was very much on the cutting edge of trying to introduce renewables. But um, you know, in the early in the early teens, many would have said, "No, First Solar is building the biggest plants in the world. Why why would you go to NRG?" You
1: know, it's kind of interesting. I got contacted uh, by a recruiter. For, uh, for NRG and, you know, basically described the job. And I was just like, well, that's kind of interesting getting to, you know, start up a plant and everything. I'd, I'd worked in some, you know, big plants in my lifetime and everything. I, I ran Raccoon Mountain for TVA, which is a 1600 megawatt pump storage plant. And so I said, well, I'll, I'll come out there and take a look. And I came out and took a look and yeah. this looked like the coolest thing you'd ever seen in your entire life. You can imagine three square miles covered with mirrors the size of garage doors and every 10 seconds get a new aiming assignment from a computer system. Yeah, folks is on the board. That was just cool stuff to me. So I, I was just like, you know, yeah. yeah, I want to be a part of this. And so it was one of those one of those things again in my career where I said, well, I'll take a I'll take a pay cut and I'll go do something different and everything like that. And you know, I'll take take on a different opportunity and everything. I've always in my career always wanted to try to do the things that people didn't want to do. And so that was one Mm. of the things that there was a lot of people who didn't want to do that job because that that was a tough job.
0: I can imagine. And also it's concentrating solar, which uh, was not what uh, many were saying was going to win the day. Uh, And it wasn't, in fairness, what a lot of what um, was being installed, Ivanpah being the gleaming example of one that got done right and uh, and performed, it is also uh, a great example of project that I'm sure you learned a ton about. And, and there was a lot of criticism around because it was one of the early projects that received a loan guarantee from the DOE. I'm curious around uh, Ivan Paul specifically, when you can, can compare it or think about what lessons you learned there. Uh, how, do you, how do you think about kind of even what Jigger's working on now, the new sort of revamping of the loan program?
1: You know, and also, if you look, uh, you know, Agua Caliente was also under the DOE Loan Guarantee Program. And so was mm-hmm. California Valley Solar Ranch and everything. Ivanpah was and just really... yeah. Topaz was. Yeah, uh, Topaz was not, actually. Uh, it was going to be, okay. but it didn't. The interesting thing about Ivanpah, though, it, it was very, very new technology. Where California Valley Solar Ranch and Agua Caliente, they were just kind of tweaks in technology. There were some changes and everything that made them... Uh, Eligible for the loan guarantee program, but Ivanpah was Mm. truly like, you know, new innovation and stuff. They'd had like a small, you know, uh, Nevada Solar One, you know, test facility or I think, or or Solar One uh, over over at Barstow, not Nevada Solar One. So there was a small test facility, but nothing like this scale or anything. So, and it it was, uh, there was a lot of challenges associated with it. You know, one of them was just the understanding that. When you're using direct radiance as opposed to indirect radiance, that without a storage component, it's difficult to ride through cloudy periods and stuff. You know, hindsight on that plant, if they'd had some interim mm-hmm. storage or if it was pure storage, the plant would have performed much better. It's still, still not not you know bad. like that, you know, still you know makes probably close to ninety yeah. percent of its estimate. But to make that 100% of estimate, it really needed some some sort of storage component associated with, you know, it's, it's tough technology when, you know, you can have a factory spit out, you know, a thousand solar panels a day. It's hard to compete with that. Yeah. So
0: You got to work for a, a guy who at one point was heralded as having saved NRG and then at one point was famously fired for, for the role that he had to kind of get thrown under the bus. David Crane, I'm curious, now that you are standing in the role of CEO building a company, What do you think about as in terms of leadership and lessons learned from the time you worked with David?
1: You know, the one thing I'll say is focusing on, on people first and foremost, and Mm -hmm. getting things done through, through example with people, as opposed to pushing them really hard is, is a much better path. And I'll, I'll try to be as politically Mm -hmm. correct about that. I have a lot of respect for David. I think David's done some incredible things, everything. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes it's hard when you know that you buy you buy the Alta Wind facility and it it generates only sixty percent of what it's supposed to because there's no wind that year. I mean, yeah. you know, and you lose millions and millions of dollars in your first year of investment. Yeah. That tends to get people a little yeah. ticklish, you know. So
0: I, I I wouldn't. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think exactly. I, I think that. Uh, and he, I remember Julia Piper did a great story on David when he got fired, and he was collateral. He was kind of collateral damage of the kind of thinking that we wish, I mean, in many cases, we wish we had now at some of these u- big utilities, right? Where people would take chances and um, and make big bets on renewables. And, and there certainly are great examples of, of utilities doing that. Uh, before we move on, I got to believe there's probably some just um, ridiculous stories because you've spent a lot of time out in the field operating some of these big plants. I'm wondering if there's anything like just out out there, like what's the strangest thing maybe you've seen out uh, on, these, uh, on these long days that you're operating these solar plants?
1: I was uh, out at the Ivanpah facility uh, over a weekend. Don't, don't ask me why I was out there on a Saturday <laughs> and everything. Yeah, because I was already working a five ten schedule. But anyway, so you know, I'm sitting at my desk and everything, reviewed some budget items or something. I get this call from a security guard. He said, hey, um, there's, a, there's a guy in a chicken suit driving a hearse and they got a film crew here. This, there's an RV with a cameraman and everything like that. They're out at the gate at Unit Two. I think you need to come out here. And I was like, Oh my god! And so, in you know, headquarters had just gotten up in Princeton. It <laughs> just gotten some protesters out front about birds. So, it flashed through my mind, Oh my, this is a bunch of bird protesters. You know, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to be on camera and everything. This is going to be trouble, right? So, so I get in my my. Uh, I had a little electric Fiat at the time. The employees called the clown car. So I get in the clown car, I drive, drive out to uh, the gate over there at unit two and I get out and this guy starts talking to me and everything, Australian accent and everything. And it, it's like nine o'clock in the morning. And I mean, he is drunker than a skunk. I mean, <laughs> and he's, you know, just loud and everything. And they've got the camera rolling and everything. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness. He, I, I said, can, can I help He said, well, we're out here driving across the U.S. trying to prove that Australia is just a bunch of chicken heads, that they won't build big solar plants like this. And we think this is the coolest thing in the wow. world and everything. And we're going around <laughs> going around filming all these great solar plants <laughs> that, the, that the U.S. has and everything, because we think the Australian government's a bunch of chicken heads. And I just laughed. I, I thought that was so funny because I was expecting the worst oh, Yeah, everything like that. And, and the guy's like, "Hey, is that an electric car?" And, Oh, that's the coolest thing! And you know, you know, he's trying to give me a hug and everything like that. And I was like, "Dude, you're going to back up just a little bit." <laughs> that's
0: such a. That, but
1: yeah, I mean, it was just crazy. I, you know, <laughs> so anyway, I was thinking the worst and everything. Yeah, you know. It, but,
0: uh, and these are all and these plants are, yeah. are always you know out in re- relatively remote locations. So I can just imagine this guy yeah. getting uh, getting suited up in his chicken suit, driving a hearse out there. That's hilarious. <laughs> Well, yeah. well, you mentioned uh, that you, in the time between kind of getting hired and getting a chance to really dig your heels in on building Ivanpah, you sat down with your team and, and wanted to teach them more about the fundamentals of running a power plant. Can you tell me a bit more about that? How do you think about having, having run large hydro and nuclear and wind plants? What would you say are some of the fundamental... Parts of running these power plants and and what did you try to instill on your employees at that time? Well, you know, the
1: the first thing is that you have to basically understand physics. Mm -hmm. So power plants all work on physics, you know, whether it's temperature, you know, fluid compression, you know, electricity it all works on physics and people need to understand basic physics to understand how these things work. That doesn't mean you have to go get a degree in physics or anything like that, but you should understand physics. And I think that's lacking in, in, in today's uh, education system that we're teaching technicians. Mm. They, they understand, Hey, I use a multimeter to check this and understand why and everything, but they don't understand some of like intricacies of, well, if the circuit's not working, then how would I troubleshoot that and stuff. And so, so I think that's one of the things that's lacking is, you know, basic understanding of of physics and then basic troubleshooting skills. I'd see all the time people say, wow, this guy's a great troubleshooter. And I'm thinking to myself, well, all technicians should be great troubleshooters mm. <laughs> because troubleshooting is a pretty simple process yeah. and everything. But it just doesn't get taught. And that, that's some of the stuff that they would teach you, you know, at, at power plants. You think about it, you know, my first job at a nuclear plant as an auxiliary operator. I said, spent six weeks, 40 hours a week in training, right? We would see technicians show up at a solar plant and everything. Maybe they get four or five hours of training and everything. You know, hey, don't touch that. And, you know, this is what a multimeter looks like. I, so, and I don't, I don't necessarily think it's that bad, but, but definitely you don't see the level of training in the, in the renewable space like you saw in the, uh, the conventional space.
0: You know, I, I mentioned before we pressed record, you have more than a lot of folks that I see in an executive role, you have a an intention and a focus around putting your thoughts out on LinkedIn. I've really appreciated that because I've got been able to get a sense of how you think and what you think are important aspects of building the power plants of the future. We mentioned at the, at the outset that you've taken on the role of CEO of Tonian, which will uh, have a new name by the time this is published. I, I'd like to hear a bit more about the evolution of your, your consulting career and, and why you've put such a focus on O&M, how you've seen it evolve, and, and how and where are we overcomplicating the process?
1: Right after I left Clearway, I pretty much so I live out uh, near... Uh, um, Nasmento lake over near Paso Robles, California mm-hmm. I live a rural remote area on 13 acres I got a I got a vineyard on the property I'm trying to dis- install an earthos solar system which we can talk about Earthos oh, yeah. here a little bit later and everything koi pond you know I got all this stuff and everything floating boat dock that you gotta know, move every two days and stuff like that but I still wasn't busy enough <laughs> and so rather than uh, drive my fiance nuts and everything I decided like I'll go you know start up this consulting business and it's just like well, what, what do people need? And I, and I think you know, th- this focus on operational excellence and, you know, and continuous improvement, a lot of people really don't do a good job of lessons learned and, mm. and getting employee feedback. That was one of the things I was really focused on when I was at Clearway was getting employee feedback you know, we had a training committee. We had a safety committee. You know, we had continuous improvement teams. Everything. So you you want feedback from employees, and the big thing is you want decisions made at the lowest level possible in the organization. So if you tell everybody, "Hey, here's our goals. Here's our plan for this year. Here's our five year plan. Here's basically the the ditches that you can operate between and everything." go, right? You find that so many organizations want to sit there and micromanage everything mm. that employees are doing and everything. I find much, much easier and that you get a much more satisfied organization if you give them boundaries that they have to work within and everything like that, give them the ultimate goal and let them go figure it out.
0: You're probably familiar with Energy Toolbase. I mean, nearly 1,500 organizations worldwide utilize ETB developer to quantify the savings and economics of their projects. But, Did you know that etb provides a comprehensive suite of software products to help model control and monitor solar and energy storage projects all in one platform that's right i know you're probably familiar with their industry-leading modeling but controls monitoring yeah acumen ems software is actually fully integrated with energy storage giants like byd delta dynapower and socamec leveraging ai and machine learning to forecast control and optimally discharge energy storage systems operating in the field or maybe you are looking for etb monitor to gain complete transparency into the operational performance and true dollar savings of your operating fleet well if i were you i'd schedule a zoom with one of etb's knowledgeable account managers You can mention Suncast when you sign up for your free trial and you get a 30-day extended free trial. You can also just click on the Toolbase logo at mysuncast.com or in our newsletters or right there in the description of today's episode in whatever app you're listening to this on to take full advantage of this free trial. Don't wait. Mitch, I think that what we want to do is talk a lot about kind of the state of the O&M market and and kind of what you have been working on, but maybe I haven't set the stage properly. We don't talk a whole lot about o and here. And in very recent history, we interviewed one of my uh, friends and one of your friends, Austin Tabor at Solar Support. But that's not all of the story. We didn't tell a whole lot about kind of where how Austin's company has evolved. And in fact, we need to talk a bit about how your company has evolved, that little consulting business that you put together to stay out of your fiance's hair. Can you set the stage for me for how Tonian came to be?
1: Sure. Um, so Tonium was actually uh, registered late last year uh, by a company called CSL Capital. They had uh, acquired two businesses, uh, one's called United Cranes, which is an uh, uptown crane business, and the other one is Omni, which is a, a technician business in the wind industry. They wanted to expand into solar. Um, I was actually working as a consultant for them uh, for doing M&A work and they ended up, uh, during that period of time, acquiring uh, solar support, uh, a portion of solar support, uh, and then also Titan Renewables, which is in Phoenix, Arizona. And the and the last thing was, they approached me and said, hey, would you be interested in this, uh, acquiring a, a portion of your company and, in, yeah. and and then being a CEO for our O&M company that we want to start up doing solar? And I was just like, well, that seems like a really... Fun idea because you know I, I think I had one more one more O and M company startup in my in my DNA so I was like yeah so I signed up for that so now there now there's five of us uh, and actually I have a a, a counterpart both east who actually he started upwind uh, and he's working on window and M and I'm working on solar O and M and eventually we'll have a common control center between the two of us and everything common platforms and stuff and so just really cool group. Of companies and cool people uh, i think there's still a few more companies in the works and maybe by the time uh-huh. this uh podcast comes out we'll, we'll know who those companies are also that are gonna go and join us but yeah no real exciting times for us i think
0: yeah it's it's really interesting the organizations that you all have gone after and, and acquired uh, in particular titan who is uh you know, clear leader in and EPC and offering O&M services, not just in the U.S., but uh, but outside of the U.S. as well. How did you all think about, and in particular you as a consultant, how did you think about the, the roll-up? Where was the gap that you saw in the market? And we'll remind listeners that there has been no lack of M&A in the, in the O&M field in recent history. Uh, in fact, for Solar's O&M team, was acquired SunPower's O&M team. Uh, the, you know, we could go down the laundry list. There are a lot of suitors out there buying companies. Where did, where did you see the gap and the opportunity?
1: I think it's because a lot of the OM and business are, are just singular businesses where what we were trying to do is put uh, together a portfolio of companies that would mm-hmm. cover all the corners of the O&M business. So, yeah, hey, you, you own a solar plant and everything, yeah, uh, But, you know, you need some work on your, you, in fact, you need to replace the inverters uh, with a different technology. And oh, we got people that could do that. You just want regular O&M. We can do that. Oh, we also own some wind farms and everything like that. Oh, yeah, we can help you out there. And so the idea was to build a portfolio of companies that had synergies between them and everything, but also would, yeah. you know, have a solution if you didn't have that solution, then one of the affiliated companies would have a solution for the customer. So very customer focused yeah. type of organization.
0: You know, Titan is a relatively large company in the, in the sort of in that group when Solar Support, I think at the time of acquisition might've had 10 or 15 employees. Where does a company like Solar Support, who listeners will have some familiarity with, where do they fall in that spectrum? What kind of value did you see them adding to the portfolio of companies?
1: Their big thing is, uh, I believe, is one, inverter technology and, and, and a very good understanding of inverters. You know, Cliff and Austin, both really strong in inverters. And really, that's that's been kind of the Achilles heel of the solar industry, really, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you got, you know, SATCOM. The dirty little
0: secret. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, AE leaving, right? Schneider getting out of the inverter business. and everything. You, you know, so... Yeah. And then you have all these orphan inverters out there, and you still need someone that knows how to work on them. You still need, you know, strategic ways to get parts and get things rebuilt and everything. So, yeah. so I think that's that's where their value is. They've also yeah. created this cool business around if you had a storm damage or fire damage on a on a solar plant, and you didn't, and you can't get those parts and pieces anymore. Innovative ways and low cost ways of repowering that plant yeah. with current technology.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. And it's some of the stuff is a little, a little bit secret sauce and uh, trade secret. And they've done a fantastic job of positioning themselves. And some of it is just having worked at companies like Genlong and SMA and seeing the inner workings and understanding where the where the keys are being held and how to help clients like Clearway and others save, save money. So it's fascinating to see this take on delivering value through operations, which at the end of the day is where most of the value gets lost. That's, you know, some of the value is lost in the spreadsheets when when the bankers buy something that probably would never have performed as well as uh, the, the P50 was suggesting. I'd like to hear from your perspective, though, when you think about operational excellence and customer service, uh, some of the things that you put out there as the, the core philosophy, how does that show up in, uh, in current sort of status of operations and maintenance? Uh, and how are you planning to help improve it at an industry level?
1: Well, I think, again, I'll go back to, you know, being an advocate for, for training, uh, being an advocate for employee development. Uh, I believe that, you know, that diverse, more diversity in our workforce is important to get, you know, more diverse ideas and, mm-hmm. you know, have, have the uh, industry grow forward. Also, you know, the, making sure the industry is uh, environmentally responsible. You know, I worked a lot around in, environmental issues, obviously, throughout my career, whether it was, uh, you know, salmon on the Columbia River or dissolved oxygen issues on the whitewater river system or bird in, interactions with wind turbines or bird interactions mm-hmm. with, you know, the Ivanpah Solar Facility or everything. And we've always been trying to be proactive and, and out front of the issues as opposed to being, you know, um, behind and reactionary to those issues. Um, so I think that's really important. We, you know, we just assume that a renewable energy plant is green and great for the environment. and That's not necessarily true. Uh, there's some things that we should be doing a better job you know, advocating in the industry and being proactive associated with them. Um, this whole thing on blade recycling and stuff and avian impacts on mm. solar plants. Or, you know, we need to make sure that we stay ahead of those issues as opposed to just reacting to those issues.
0: I saw a post recently where you said negotiating an O&M contract requires a lot of experience and the ability to give in some areas and not bend, in, but not bend in others. Where do you see folks uh, making mistakes when it comes to negotiating their O&M for these big plans?
1: The mistakes you can make is, is you know, you having a vision of what the guarantee is, and it's not really there on paper uh, what that guarantee is. Uh, we and, and that's one of the things we were doing in our consulting business is helping owners that really had kind of bad contracts to help them go in, look and see if there was terms that they could renegotiate, um, not necessarily more favorable, but just more fair. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, a contract's got to be fair. If it's, if it's, you know, leaning one way or the other, then it's really not something that's going to work long term for both parties. The other thing I'll say, though, and, and, and this is extremely important. People don't read their contracts <laughs> a lot of times, and, and people don't have their employees read and understand the contract. And, and it's amazing to me that, you know, I, I mean, I had a conversation with, you know, a, a fellow VP one time and everything, and there and something silly like, uh, well, the contract wants a change order because they got to wear long sleeve shirts. And so I went and looked in the contract and it says in the contract that they got to wear long sleeve shirts. And I'm just like, why are well, you telling me it's a change order? Why don't you just read your contract? So, you know, so that's one of the things I say, the first and foremost, if you get, you know, employees out there that are performing work on an O&M contract, make sure they at least understand the terms by which you're performing those things. Make sure that, you know, they're actually doing things that you're supposed to be doing. Make sure you're notifying people when something's wrong and everything. But yeah, you know, you got to make sure I think at the end of the day, the contract's fair, that it's understandable. Both parties understand the meaning of, of things, understand what the guarantees are and everything. But But the second most important thing is making sure the employees that are performing under that contract actually know all the ins and outs of the contract and how to perform.
0: Yeah, I I love that. You actually, I may link to this. You have a post where you go into some detail. Are you getting what you're paying for? And you actually point out that some folks don't, uh, don't even necessarily read those contracts. They're negotiated and transacted without folks really understanding what's going on. I have to assume that on some level prior, obviously to, to Tony and you through your consulting business were focused on being an ally to those folks and helping make sure that they get, uh, get, that they get those contracts in place in a way that is, uh, is meaningful and helpful for them. Given that you've seen so many different types of operating plants, if we talk in real terms, you mentioned inverters being an area of breakdown. What are some warning signs that you might give to plant operators, to business owners who aren't necessarily reading their contracts about the areas where their model uh, be it their, their financial model or their construction model isn't perhaps isn't reflecting uh, what you're seeing in the field of where the breakdown is occurring.
1: Yeah. Well, I'd say the first thing, and I would say this to everybody, do not hang your hat on serial number one. So, you know, just like you don't (laughs) usually buy the first car off an assembly line, you need to really think long and hard about, about you know, something that's the first generation uh, that's not field proven uh, for, for inverters. So that, that's the first thing. Um, yeah. The second thing is you got to really, uh, your operator really has to have a good relationship with the inverter manufacturer and a rela- relationship with them from the standpoint that they're allowed to do the warranty work countless times inverters sit offline waiting for a technician from the OEM to show up on site to repair it. So that's another item. Uh, the third one is parts availability, making sure you understand what parts you need. Also monitoring what the failure rates are. And, you know, if you're having a part fail more often Everything. one, is there something I could do to prevent that failure, or or if it's just you know the you know the upside of the bathtub curve on failure rates, then making sure I have adequate supply chain so that I don't have a bunch of downtime associated with it. So if you, I think if you do those three things and everything, you you will you will at least impact the uh, you know the issues associated with it. But I mean, if you if you buy an inverter from a non tier one company and they're bankrupt two years later, and you're wondering why you can't get parts, well. The reason is because that company is not around anymore, and then you need to be calling, you know, solar support to help you to help you find find
0: replacement parts. That's exactly right. If they've if they've done anything well, it is to become the folks that can replace parts that aren't easily found. That is fantastic. Well, you have a, a field of vision, as I've mentioned, of kind of what is happening as the industry scales and grows. I would love to hear what trends you might be spotting, either that are encouraging or perhaps. Uh, alarming.
1: Well, like I said, I, I see a lot of new products on the market, both wind and solar, that just have a lot of teething issues, and they're you know the plants aren't making expectations. It was interesting. Uh, I, I sat in on a webinar uh, the other day that was talking about the solar industry in general, and they were saying on average plants are underperforming, you know, between six and seven percent, which is kind of interesting because I had a long call with my ex CEO over a weekend one time about the fact that all all of our distributed generating plants were underperforming 7% and we need to fix all the operational problems that are causing it. And I was just like, I don't think they're operational problems.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, yeah. you get into a yeah, long were, debate
0: about that. Those are born, yeah, those are born in the project development cycle when you finance
1: these <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know, if you go in and, you know, you want the thing off the top rack or, you know, if you have like five variables and you pick them the, mo- the the highest one out of the five variables and add them all together, you're never gonna make that number. Right. So if you pick the rosiest resource, yeah. the lowest, you know, the lowest availability, the lowest curtailment, you know, all that stuff and everything, and you add them all together, I guarantee you'll never make those numbers. So so we need to be more realistic about when we're when we're putting these numbers together for these plants and everything and, Completely. and, and understand that picking picking the, you know, the the rosiest outcome on every variable and everything is not going to be good for the industry long-term.
0: Many of you will have listened to episode 389 with Heidi Larson, Skip Dice, and Hao Shen. We talked specifically about it. So if you guys want to dig into more detail on how the value of the solar data is important in actually arriving at a bankable plant that doesn't suffer these kinds of degradation issues or um, underperformance issues, uh, that's where I would encourage you to to dig in deeper. You mentioned Earthos. So I'd like to ask you a couple of questions because I had Flanagan and Charles on the show. What do you find compelling about Earthos? How's it different? Why are you installing one?
1: Yeah, you know, first and foremost, you know, uh, I was a founding investor, Jim Tyler Key Summers, close personal friend and everything, you know, great guys and everything. And uh, to me, there really hasn't been a step change in costs associated with the renewable energy industry, you know, in costs, and this is to me a step change that's just really uh, going to shake up the industry. Uh, I think there's a lot of uh, non-believers and everything, but I'm uh, in the throes of permitting a uh, a 40 uh, kW DC, 30 kW AC system for my house. Yeah. Uh, I got a nice flat spot down next to the house and everything, and so. Uh, I'll uh, I'll be sure to send you some pictures and everything uh, when it gets commissioned. Austin sa- asked me to have him come out there, and uh, we're going to go get some wine from the vineyard down the road for here and everything, and commission the thing. Love yeah. it. Obviously, drink the wine after commissioning, but yeah. yeah.
0: Hopefully, hopefully, uh, it doesn't get mistaken as a dance floor someday. <laughs> <laughs> Mitch, on the Earthos topic, I wonder what are you seeing about the way that they're. Thinking about long-term plant operation that maybe others are missing because, you know, I think inherently folks look at laying a a plant flat on the ground, especially in a utility scale situation, as uh, missing some of the operational efficiency opportunities that trackers provide. You've built many gigawatts. Where do you see this as an opportunity?
1: Well, a couple things. So first and foremost, one of the largest costs to renewable energy plants is vegetation management. So if you think about that, there's no space for the vegetation to grow. So that, that one's checked mm-hmm. off. So now your O&M costs, you just took vegetation management off your O&M costs. Okay. One of the things they're also looking at is just upsizing the DC enough that you don't really have to routinely go out and replace solar panels. Yeah. So if you have enough excess DC capacity... Well, then you're not going out and replacing panels, so you don't care if you have a one percent failure rate out in the field. So that lowers the O&M costs, and then the the whole process of you know being continuously cleaned by by robotics, as opposed to people coming in and crews coming in and doing cleaning everything, I, I think that's another thing that one's going to increase production uh, in you know and and uh, lower all, overall costs. What's interesting is. You know, we had this discussion around trackers and, you know, I, I had some plants in Hawaii. And what's interesting is in partly cloudy areas where there's a lot of, you know, movement of cloud cover and stuff like that, trackers, you'd be better off having a tracker almost horizontal yeah. or just moving slight, slightly five degrees both directions. Because most of the light's diffused light. It's right. not directly from the sun. So, you know, think about that. So, if you put one of these things out in you know, an area where you get a lot of partly cloudy weather and everything... Uh, they're going to perform real close to what a track system is going to uh, perform, you know, in, in, you know, much, much smaller real estate area.
0: And, and this is probably a better question again, back for Flanagan, but did the Earthos team think of, uh, obviously they thought about it, but why they decided to go perfectly flat instead of what many have done at five degrees angled East West, just do a, a system that way.
1: Yeah. I, th- I think again, it was just the, the removal of all the, all the metal infrastructure. Yeah, you know, just laying them flat on the ground is honestly, honestly so simplistic, it's kind of like, Wow, why didn't anybody else think of this? Yeah. So we were we were kind of laughing and everything that uh, you know, we want to patent uh, putting solar panels on the moon. We're gonna call it Lunos and everything and see if we can sell that to Musk, right? So yeah. this new company called Lunos and everything, because you know, you put them on the moon, yeah, you know, everything, you just lay them flat on the ground. Just lay them flat. There you go. And
0: you can power you can power all the operations. Mitch, you've been involved in uh, a, a number of different, what I might call success stories. So I'm going to ask if there's anything, so sort of when you think about the renewable energy industry and I say success story, what comes to mind for you?
1: You know, I think the one thing is is drone technology. I think drone te- technology from an O&M standpoint has been pretty much a game changer. Now, funny, funny story, back in 2009, we had this, you know, wild idea that, you know, maybe you could, you know, an infrared camera over a solar field and figure out if things weren't working. And everything. because yeah. we already knew that you could walk around with an IR camera, but if you, know, you, know, you had a square mile of solar panels, that's that's going to take walking. a little while, right? So uh, I contacted this company called Stockton Infrared and gave them my crazy idea, and they were like, "Yeah, well, well let's try it out." And so they uh, they got a military grade uh, helium cooled camera, strapped it to, <laughs> under a Cessna airplane. <laughs> And flew over the Blythe one uh, facility. And lo and behold, you could find, you know, strings that were, you know, the fuse was blown on them, or you know, wow. the combiner box fuse was blown, combiner boxes offline, modules that had failed, and everything like that. Really, really cool. Yeah, you know, the, the problem was that you had to sit there with a magnifying glass, go through the photos, break down what row, you know, <laughs> how far in and everything, you know, what right. what height was it, you know, the third module or whatever like that. You know, in that row. And and so it was very uh laborious and everything. So it, hence it was pretty expensive. I think the first time we did it was, you know, I want to say, you know, north of forty-five thousand dollars. Wow. Right. To do this, right. Well, you know, today you can buy a really good drone for about fifty grand. <laughs> you could do a bunch of plants. Yeah. And by the and way, they have the software. Yeah, they got the software package that says, Hey, it's this module, that module, that string, that combiner box over there, and everything. It just tells you that. Cool. Now, the big challenge is once you get that information, are you actually going to go fix all that stuff? That's good. right. So and that's where the, that's where the good contract language and a good operator, uh, someone that says, yeah, I'm going to maintain DC health and everything as a part of my own M contract. That where's that comes into play?
0: I, I appreciate that. You mentioned drones. I interviewed Rob Andrews from Heliolytics, uh, who obviously has a s- slightly different take on the ability to scale infrared and and sight parameters using technology as well it sounds like you're more uh, aligned with the ability to scale with drones than with manned aircraft
1: i, I, I agree i think i think drones because here's the thing i, I think you, if you um can do small segments at a time uh, and do use use drones and do the repair repair work in real time i think you get much more value out of it Uh, We use those for um, when was that way We use those for our DG sites. Literally, the first thing the technician would do is put a drone in the air, go fly the whole facility, yeah, and figure out what isn't working, and go you know focus on you know getting some of that DC DC back online. Amazing. As opposed to flying it, getting the report, goes to someone's desk and everything, they got to read it, then someone generates a bunch of work orders, and you know then you know six months later you finally get the stuff fixed. I like, I like the stuff that's done more in real time and, and operators think it's really cool. So they, they think that's a cool thing to do yeah. and everything, you know, and. It's a fast
0: growing yeah. uh, job opportunity as well. I'm curious, who yeah. do you see doing drone O&M right? Like who should, who should I be interviewing? I haven't interviewed any like large scale drone companies like Drone Deploy. I've, I've, I've got, I've had the guys from uh, ScanFly who are focused on residential, but who's doing the utility scale stuff right?
1: We used one company uh, in, the, in the wind industry to do blade inspections and everything. But obviously, since we're talking about solar, I think it's Aerial Robotics is the name of the company. And the cool thing about them is they would actually help you pick out the drone. They would help train and certify your staff. You know, so they were really an enabler for O&M organizations that oh, wow. want to. Utilize drones in their business.
0: Oh, that's really now. There's cool. some
1: other companies out there with some really cool software and everything. But there's a lot of them. And everything. I, I, you know, you you can't you can't turn turn a page in, in PV magazine to, without right. seeing, you know, someone out there that's got some new quick technology with drones. But I think you know, there's a whole lot of stuff. The interesting thing, I you know, go back to the Stockton Infrared. They, their claim to fame was that they flew. One of the cities in the Midwest looked for hot flues coming from houses and overlaid that with people that were paying a gas bill. Oh, wow. And they figured out that a lot of gas was being used that wasn't getting paid for. And so that's that was their uh, that was their foray into aerial infrared was looking for people that were uh, you know they'd gone and cut the lock on their gas meter and everything and turned their gas on.
0: Wow. Well, that's really interesting. It's it's fascinating the way that this technology allows for new businesses and new ideas to, to scale. I know that you know, you've had an opportunity now to sort of lean in and mentor a number of folks in, in your career, but I have to imagine that you've probably had a number of folks uh, give into your life in similar ways. I'd love to know, are there any key lessons or takeaways from important mentors in your career that have really left an indelible mark that you could share with us?
1: You know, in, in, uh, I was thinking about this the other day. Um, a couple of people really uh, did some... Uh, really, uh, impressionary things in my life. Uh, first guy was, uh, his name is Peter Gibson. Uh, I think when Peter retired, he was the head of, uh, uh, the Northwest region for, uh, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers and Hydropower. And, um, he hired me in, you know, I, I told you I took this job, I left the nuclear plant and yeah. everything, took this big, huge pay cut, took this job up on the Columbia river. He actually put me in a car with him and spent a week and drove to every plant on the Columbia river wow. and introduced me with plant management You know, and so people knew who I was when they picked up the phone, everything. And I think people don't understand how valuable it is to just some simple mentoring thing like that. Yeah. Now, to say there's, there's times I learned a lot from him about, you know, I told him one time, hey, I I need to buy some computers for, uh, you know, for the tech technician training class and everything like that. And he's just like, well, you know, you come in and just tell me something like that. You're not going to get anything out of me. You need yeah. to do some homework. You know, you need to tell me what the budget is. You need to tell me uh, what the value is and everything like that. You so know, he booted me out of his office. So I was like, I oh, it. okay, well, I guess I, guess I need to come do my homework. That just come in and tell him I needed something.
0: That's right. Um, Don't, yeah, <laughs> so, ask, ask for resources so, with reasons.
1: You know, the other one was uh, at, when I was at Raccoon Mountain, I just hired in, so on a on a Friday, there was like five managers in the plant, uh, and they were doing this hundred million dollar modernization. It was upside down. They were getting ready to put the third unit in. The plant was being shaken apart and everything like that. And Monday morning, I was the only manager in the plant, brand new, just showed up. We were starting an outage to fix the you know basically the rehabilitation, the modernization that they were doing. In six weeks. And so the first week in, you know, someone had a pinched finger and someone else had, you know, sh- sore shoulder and everything. And, uh, uh, the guy I worked for, just incredible, incredible guy uh, named Gary Malden actually, uh, took up office, uh, you know, in the plant for, for a period of time and everything. And he and I would walk the plant every day and look at what people were doing, working and everything, and come back in the meeting and talk about how to do things safer. It was the first time I really, really thought about safety and p having people engaged in safety and really looking at stuff now everybody jokes because i look and if there's something sit on the floor and everything i'll say hey you know move that we need to make sure that's moved you know or if i see something you know laying down and everything i'll pick it up and put it away and everything <laughs> you know that's you know funny. i talk to people all the time about i i you know uh kid at uh, my fiance's son and everything like that working with the backhoe we have on the property here and everything and i'm out there talking to him about pre-job brief and pinch points and all this other stuff so he kind of made me a little bit of a safety nazi from the standpoint of thinking about it all the time but gary was a great guy great guy fun to work for and so those are those are two two great people that i've had in my career
0: i love that Be a fund manager. Don't let folks get away with uh, asking for resources without explanations. Walk around and see how people are doing things with a focus on how we can improve them, whether it's safety or, or otherwise. Mitch, as we head towards home plate here, I'd love to know, is there a book that has made a particularly strong impact on your own personal career or sort of the way you see the business world or maybe your private life?
1: There's a couple that I really uh, like and everything. Uh, One of them I I gave to almost direct reports when I was uh, in my previous position, but it's called uh, Simple Solutions, Harnessing the Power of Passion and Simplicity to Get Results. Now, that's a really long title, but it's by the, the guys that started up FedEx. And it talks about the importance of solutions that are simple or Usually solutions that work, you know, when people build these really complex solutions to problems, it's difficult to enact those. And so so I think, you know, it, I, I go back to what I said before, you know, and Vince, uh, Vince Lombardi said it well, you know, really if football is just blocking and tackling. Well, the same thing, you know, in in power plants, you know, it's basically the blocking and tackling, you know, good turnover, good watch keeping, you know, Focusing on, you know, figuring out why something went wrong, and, and and you know, having a good corrective action program, good training, good procedures, and everything, engaged employees, you know, those are all simple things. We all want this really complex, fancy thing, you know, that's, that's supposedly going to solve our problem and everything. But really, it comes down to really simple solutions in most organizations. So that's the first one. The other one, and I think this is this is the Bible. If you want to be an operator in a nuclear plant, or a hydro plant, or a solar plant. You need to get this book. You need to read it. You need to understand it. And it's called the Industrial Operator's Handbook. Okay. It is all the basic fundamentals of you know log keeping, watch standing, you know, basically shift turnover, human performance, all those things that make uh, a good operator a great operator. The other thing about it is it also talks about all the times where operations did go so well. It talks about Bhopal and the accident uh, at, the, uh, at the Union Carbide plant or wow. the Exxon Valdez, right? You know, so it goes through you know the, basically the, uh, the framework by which you can have a large industrial accident. And it's usually only a few things that line up and everything. And then all of a sudden that arrow goes right through all those targets and everything. And you have mm-hmm. this major incident, major accident. Everything. So, those two books I would strongly recommend for people. You know, simple solutions, and then you know, the operational excellence really is that industrial operator's handbook.
0: Yeah, for those of you that for those of you that are too lazy to go look at the show notes, where we always list out the links and and make it easy for you to find these. Uh, the operator's handbook is by H. C. Howlett, uh, the second edition. I'm going to link to that as I said, and the other one that was written by the folks from FedEx. Simple Solutions Harness the Power of Passion and Simplicity to Get Results by Thomas Schmidt, Arnold Pearl, Frederick Smith. So like I said, we'll link to those and uh, you know what I really appreciate Mitch is when uh, when someone has the, the presence to not just say the name of the book but tell how what they learned from it, what the takeaway is, why should I read it? I really appreciate that you gave the additional uh, that additional color. Thank you. Definitely going to check out in particular Simple Solutions but the industrial operator's handbag has has kind of called my attention because I think that there is value in learning outside of your particular zone of expertise uh, so that you can see what about what I've learned applies to what I'm doing. How can I take ideas from over there and apply them over here? So it's one of the reasons why I ask this question. Mitch, you seem to me like someone who has uh, been very methodical and process oriented, uh, not just about your work, but I have to imagine probably in your personal life as well. Do you have particular routines in particular around morning and evening that help give you uh, operational excellence in your life?
1: Well, the one thing I'll say is uh, I get up early, usually around 5am and I go to bed early (laughs) around (laughs) 9pm. And so, uh, you know, I'm not sure if that's the age catching up with you and everything, but it seems to work for me. Uh, That's one thing. I'll say that I always take time during the day to you know go outside, take a walk and everything. Yeah. I always make sure that I stay connected with friends. I think that's really important for people. And we don't do it that often. We get real, real busy and everything. But uh, you know, make sure you have some time and not not not, I'm not talking on a daily thing, but but you know, on a periodic basis, I always yeah. check in with friends and see how things are going, and everything. It's amazing what you can uh, what you can accomplish in your life by staying connected with friends Hence, staying connected with Jim Tyler and Keith Summers and the, the guys that started up Earthos and everything and got yeah. me involved in it. You know, I mean, that's, that's a, that's something to be said for having, uh, uh friends with a, with a passion and the, and the same passions that you have.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Also, uh, I, I had a question. So I know that given that you have to travel a lot for work, Is it often difficult while traveling to make that 9 p.m. bedtime?
1: Uh, Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. But, you know, the interesting thing is, I think all of us have kind of learned to travel less, uh, you know, uh, because of COVID. So I'm not traveling as much as I was prior to COVID. Still traveling some, uh, but still pretty, you know, unless I'm doing, uh, you know, uh, an East Coast type of meeting and everything like that. Typically, it's still get to bed early and everything even if some people want to stay up and you know howl at the moon a little bit and everything
0: for sure so well uh zig ziglar says uh no matter what time you go to bed get up at the same time so that's the hardest part right there is if you do break your rule of going to bed uh earlier then it still is for mental and other reasons beneficial to still get up at the same time every day Jim where can folks best engage with you? I know that you have a, a great presence on LinkedIn. Is there is that the best place for folks to find you?
1: Yeah, I think that's the best place for uh, folks to find me and my email address is on there. Um, you know, I, I pretty much stay active.
0: Yeah, not just your email but your phone. Yeah, I love the yeah. the yeah. Uh, the LinkedIn accounts where folks make it really easy to contact because they believe that it's meant to help them network and build uh, and build a bigger, uh, a bigger, uh, audience. And and,
1: and, 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 you know, the consulting business is still going strong. We're actually collaborating with Austin on some consulting work. I've worked with uh, a couple of owner operators on, uh, on, a, on a merger between their two companies and how to merge their O and M organizations together. And, you know, and so we continue to do that. We t- continue to help out, uh, people with their, with their O and M contracts. And yeah, you know, how, how, to, how to get the best value out of their contract and, and with their o provider. So, yeah. still continuing to do that work.
0: We'll be watching closely to see how the new o venture uh, unfolds. Let's end today, Mitch, with a bold prediction, as you always do. What one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball?
1: Well, I think what we're going to see is the next next generation uh, of this industry, the next remake of this industry is going to come from you know some of the the old beliefs and everything uh, and and uh, the old guard changing out and 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 adopting to a more customer service type of thing where we're not focused on building a project we're focused on building a project right and I think I think that's the big change I, and I think that's going to eventually come from. From lenders, I think lenders, you know, are are not going to be happy with plants, you know, six to seven percent short on their estimates uh, on a continuous basis. So I think we're we're going to go back and refocus on building more quality instead of volume, even oh, in nice. the midst of what's happening in the industry. So I keep on saying this, and I keep on, you know, crossing my fingers every year that it's going to happen. But my bold prediction is eventually the chickens are going to go home to roost. People are going to say, listen, we're not investing in this stuff anymore if it doesn't make its numbers. So right. figure out how to make it make its numbers. Build it it's right a, the first time.
0: Build it right the first time. It's a valid point. Well, if they build it right the first time, you'll have less work to do, but it will be because of some of the great influence that you've had on the industry. Mitch Samulian is the new CEO at the yet to be named, probably named by the time you're listening to this company, we're referring to as Tony and Solar. Mitch, it has been such a pleasure to get to know you better and have you here on Suncast. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you very much, Nico.
0: All right, Solar Warriors. Well, thank you for those of you who are end of podcast episode outro listeners. I rarely record a canned outro. And so you get to hear my musings as I think about what is happening in the world of Suncast. I also want to say thank you to Mitch. Thank you for taking the time out of a very busy calendar right now for you as you guys are. Rolling uh, with this new venture. Thank you for explaining how the OM industry is evolving, for illuminating the fundamentals of power plant management, some of the blocking and tackling. If you're eager to keep learning, then you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every other discussion, along with the social media links, our book recommendations, and so much more over on the blog at mysuncast.com. Click on the show notes. And that will transport you to where these episodes reside. You can always scroll all the way down to the bottom of the page and click on search, and that will help you find any episode that you're looking for, including this one. Just type in Mitch, and it'll bring up this episode. Since you're already gonna be online, I'd love it if you would take some time. Go say hi to Mitch and I on LinkedIn and share this episode if you'd be so kind. Share it with your friends, share it with your colleagues and collaborators. And let us know what did you learn? What resonated with you? Who do you think needs to hear this story today? And if you're a faithful listener who has yet to leave us a review and a rating, well, it's easier than ever to do that. You can go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast and leave your rating and review. I would really love if you would do that because it helps people find Suncast. The same way at some point you found Suncast. So you're passing it forward, you're contributing to other folks improving their knowledge and helping level up their career in clean energy. Hope you'll join us next week where we'll have another Tactical Tuesday, Practical Advice and Tools of the Trade for growing your clean energy career. And Thursdays where we have a long-form interview just like what you've just listened to. I Hope that you will continue to come back. And if you do, thank you. Thanks once again as well to our sponsors for helping make this content free to you you can learn more about them their offers and how you could become a sponsor as well at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor remember you are what you listen to thanks again for showing up solar warrior it's half the battle